Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Oliver Volcard. Ollie is a director at Volcard Group, a leisure firm with a portfolio of hospitality venues. Um, Ollie, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. It's certainly a cloudy and autumnal day here as well in the northeast. Yes, it's uh, very much the case, I think, all over the uh, the country today. It's um, not the best weather for this, but at least we're all uh, tucked up inside and it's actually quite warm in comparison. Um, now, normally at this point in the programme, Ollie, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, which has really hung over us all like a dark cloud this year, I feel it's appropriate we approach the subject matter from that angle. Um, reason being is because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. Um, But for yourself as a businessman, with a portfolio of businesses predominantly in the hospitality sector, to what extent has it affected things for you? Um, I've been in business for 25 years in this city. Um, I've obviously seen lots of ups and downs and lots of changes in that time. I've never experienced anything like this. It seems to be an absolute whirlwind that is hitting us from from all sides all the time. Um, Some of the greatest challenges in it beyond the obvious health issues, which everyone is very aware of, but if we're looking specifically in running a business and running a business in hospitality, we've we've been faced with an ever-changing sea state. So so at the beginning of this in April, hospitality was very much seen by by the government and and the public certainly as an industry that needed protection. And we, I think, were very, very well looked after, well supported, well cared for at the beginning of this. Um, and we went through that some with an air, an air of confidence and government support, which culminated obviously in August with Eat Out to Help Out. And that was a real celebration for the industry. Lots of lots of businesses did very well. We reopened. Customers embraced us once again. We felt very much that we'd come out of the other side of, of something which was torrid, albeit we'd survived it. Um What's happened over the past six weeks has been a deterioration both in, in terms of trade, in terms of weather, in terms of outlook and forecast, but also in the mood music that seems to be coming out of central government. We no longer seem to be the loved industry that we once were, and we seem to be being targeted as the main vector of transmission of the COVID virus, which seems a very different place from where we were and also seems somewhat unjust. And so to try and steer a business through this has been has been really challenging, but also quite enlightening in in, in views and and the way you approach things. There've been very many different business decisions. When you all of a sudden are looking at businesses, how can we best lose the least amount of money by opening? Can we open this business just to break even? How do we keep as many staff as possible? These aren't natural things one would think of in business but these are the the conversations and decisions which are happening every day at the moment and I can imagine from this experience of crisis management and having to make decisions like this you've probably actually learned quite a lot during this time not just about yourself but also everybody around you too that you work with 
Yeah, I mean, I think people very often talk about their team of people being so important. We, yeah. in, in February, we employed 280 people. Very sadly, I stand here now and we probably employed less than 100 people. And that's been the greatest challenge for me. I, I didn't know all of those 280 people and many of them may not have even known me, but, but as they've gone and as they've disappeared from the business, we felt weaker and less, less of what we were. Yes, we still have the buildings and we still have the properties, but we are, we are becoming a shell of what we were and, and losing that, that culture and that, that group of people who, who made the business what it is. I always thought the business was me and I've learned this year it clearly, clearly isn't me. It's very little to do with me. Um, and so that, that's been a really challenging situation. So often in business, you'll, you'll think of yourself and your family and your own circumstance. And actually that's been very much the, the last thing on my mind throughout this, this summer and this year. And that's been, that's been an, an, an interesting um, turn of events. And how long do you see the current sort of COVID secure restrictions actually being in place for in hospitality? And the reason why I ask that question is because even a working vaccine should, of course, we get one. It's not necessarily going to work as an immediate magic bullet, is it? It's still going to take some time, perhaps, for people to sort of summon up the courage to go out into hospitality venues and eat around other people again en masse because of the sort of prolonged anxiety this is going to cause and the effect that will have on consumers confidence i come at this from a slightly different point of view actually i think in august when we when we were allowed to reopen it was it was an insanely busy month it felt like mm. it felt like december it, all of our staff at the end of it were just were just exhausted we were all worn out and, and there was a real surge and pent-up demand from people to go out and, and embrace hospitality and i think covid has a different effect on many people. There are clearly people who are very frightened of it and, and are and are concerned for their health. And that may be because they are they have an underlying health condition or they are of a certain age. But equally so there's a great swathe of the population which don't have a fear of it and actually resent what it is detracting from their lives. And so I think certainly there'll be a, there will be a stream of customers who we will have to spend time building up their confidence once again and they'll have to build a confidence in the vaccine and they'll have to build a confidence in medicine. But I think there's also a great stream of customers who are just desperate to go out and socialise and be around people. I think a great thing so many of us have missed during this time is social interaction, whether that be having a pint or going for a meal or having a kick around with with a football with your pals in the park, whatever it is. I think we've, we've all missed social interaction probably as much as any other restrictions that we've had. And so, mm. and so I hope, I hope that, that science and medicine will be our savior here. And, and I think it'll be a combination of things. I think a vaccine clearly at some point is going to make a difference. I think as we learn to medically treat positive cases of COVID, so they don't turn into um, more serious medical events and, and and I think we will we will come out of that with the help of science. Now the government are talking about March, April. I don't know if that's simply because that's when the flu season ends or because they suspect the medical innovation will come in before then and therefore they can be seen as heroic. I think as a business, 
Um, we are looking ahead and thinking that we've got to find a way to stagger through the very challenging trading environment at the moment for six months. And really, we're looking and thinking, okay, where where can we be in March or April? And so I hope um, that things change by then. And, and I mean, amazingly, at that point, would have been a year into this. Mm. And if you'd have said to me, if you'd have said to me in Christmas last year, um, you're going to close for 12 months, in effect, have zero revenue, I would have looked at you and thought, right, well, I'll, I won't be in this business anymore. And so to have got as far as we've got is good. To get to April will be a challenge, although I'm confident we will get there. Um, I would like to see, I would like to see some movement, at least by the one year anniversary of this. Let's certainly hope so. And um, one thing that we might see as well during that time is essentially some of the features of the last few months becoming a permanent part of the way that business works in this country. In a lot of industries, of course, there's already this shift toward remote working, albeit within hospitality, that's not possible. But do you think that some of the things that have cropped up in the sector, such as hand sanitizer stations, certain ways of sort of laying out restaurants, do you think that could well be here to stay? Yeah, I think there are. In every negative situation, there are positives come from it. I think one of the things that a great number of people have embraced is table service. It's something we've always done in in our business across a number of our venues. And it's something which is really enjoyed and embraced by customers. Being served at a table is a really nice experience. And I think that will continue. I think enhanced cleaning regimes, enhanced sanitization, it seems to make absolute sense. When all this started to happen in March, um, I would, so many of my venues are, as I say, 25 years old. I was amazed that we were running out of hot water across all our venues all the time. And it was simply because every person using the toilet were washing their hands. And what it made me think, this must never have happened before. <laughs> and so I think things like hand cleaning, um, cleaning PDQ machines, cleaning tables in a better manner, chairs in a better manner, um, table service, I think those things will stick and we will be better for it. Um, I really hope masks go away. I think they're a grim thing. I, I, I find it sad when we lose interaction with someone's face and smiles and, and, and you know that connection you have with someone without saying words, with just a look. So I, I hope masks um, disappear. I like all the outdoor areas that are being built. Um, obviously, it's a bit chilly at the moment, but I'm looking at customers on the weekend just gone putting coats on and putting boots on and putting hats on and sitting outside and, and, and living in a very different way than they would be used to. And I hope those outdoor areas maintain as well. And so, yes, there will be, there will be positives that will come out of this. And obviously, um, let's hope some of the more negative aspects of it disappear into the annals of history. Let's certainly hope so. And um, thinking about what may happen now over the uh, the next 12 months, just because I'm conscious that our time on the programme is beginning to draw to its close, Ollie, um, what do you sort of want for, in terms of where the business should be in the next year? I mean, what do you really want to have achieved by this time in 12 months? And indeed, where do you see the industry heading in that period of time? I think before, well, I think 12 months is, is, is have probably two main sectors, main parts to it. I think sadly for a period of months coming we're going to see a lot of pain in the industry we're going to see closures and business failures and I think we're going to see some pretty horrific unemployment numbers coming out in November as the furlough scheme ends and businesses are simply non-viable um, and I think that is going to be a, 
a time of real sadness. And that'll be around that, that Christmas period, which is always such a boom time in our industry. I think that's going to be very sad um, and a damaging time for us. By nature, I'm an optimist, and I hope that as we come into the new year, and, we, and, and, and as I've said previously, medicine and science catches up with us. I hope we start to rebuild. I hope we rebuild in positive ways with customers who embrace us with a great, a greater sense of, of friendship and bonhomie as, uh, with our fellow man and, and, and actually enjoying social environments. And I think we can grow and have a great year. Now, it will take a number of great years to rebuild the balance sheets of many, many businesses within hospitality. We've taken, we've taken an enormous hit. Um, and certainly a few months of good trade won't do that. But let's hope we'll come into the new year we can start to rebuild, we can start to rebuild the balance sheets and um, we can all start to do what we do best, which is um, supply good times and good memories and good fun. Let's really hope so, because it is so, so important in the wider scheme of things for people's mental health as well. And that's certainly been amplified, the importance of mental health and well-being by this whole pandemic. I certainly wish you all the luck in the world in your endeavours, Ollie. And I actually think, just given how nice it's been having you on the programme with us today, that it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next 12 months and have you back on the programme just to see how things are coming along. And I really hope a little bit later on down the line that even though it might be a little bit of a tricky time coming up, there will be some positive news to share at least well it's certainly something i will look forward to doing and um you know i've, I've done a lot of stuff about the negatives of COVID. and i do look forward to um as you say the good stories coming out of it and, uh, and a bit of a bit of um smiles and happiness again and hey listen i want to pay some tax revenues i'm sick of taking money from the government i want to mm. i want to start contributing again it's what i've done for a quarter of a century and it's what i want to keep doing Exactly. Get the income coming in and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Absolutely right. And mm-hmm. I love the positivity, Ollie. It's absolutely infectious. And I think we all do need a dose of it during this period of time because morale isn't necessarily great at the moment, but it's something that can always be changed. And um, most importantly as well, until we do hopefully get to speak again on the programme, please do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on in the world as well. You take care too. I look forward to speaking to you soon. I'd also like to extend that to every single one of the listeners tuning into the programme today. Please do stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Oliver Volcard onto today's programme. Coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, who will be entering the show. Now, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals during his professional career for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most well-known, of course, for that famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany back at the old Wembley, which saw England lift the Jules Rimet trophy to date their only World Cup and also made him the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in a World Cup final. So Jeff will be coming onto the programme to not just look back at some of those highlights of his career, but also talking about the importance of robust leadership throughout and leaving a message of thanks to our wonderful NHS who've been doing all they can during this most trying time that is coming up next and now ladies and gentlemen without further ado we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in sir jeff hurst who joins us on the program today um sir jeff good morning good morning how are you very good thank you it certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it isn't it it is the weather's pretty good at the moment i hope it might, might last 
Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I want England to be successful. I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in in anything, in in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I wanted to bury it. And I'd be absolutely... I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
uh, there's an element of, of, of risk uh, making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, covid uh, very heartwarming, and I think that kind of feeling. I, I probably, as a player in '66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about '66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing, and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony Um for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry has been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, who's a team coach, who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character, who's a, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the uh, country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kindly put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, uh, the sort of went messing about but between the two. I had uh, one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls up and not just setting balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. 
And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time with the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contributions to that success that I've had so um, yes it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England <laughs> new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always jokingly say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly, um, I felt during the, time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. And I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. 
I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses, but there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would, pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.